Well, thank you, Simon, for a wonderfully generous introduction. It is just a pleasure to be back at the ANU. Uh, can I begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people and whose lands we're meeting tonight? Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yungu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Nanawalwari, Dawdawari, Dindi, Wangaralinjinyin. And acknowledge any Indigenous people present tonight. Uh, it's a, a real pleasure to be introduced by Simon Grant and to have in the audience uh, so many friends and luminaries from the ANU. Uh, I want to acknowledge in particular uh, David Gruen, Fred's son, Anna Gruen, Fred's gra granddaughter. I spoke to Nicholas Gruen and the uh, car on the way here. Uh, to uh, recognise Brian Schmidt and Jenny Gordon. Uh, Brian, for your extraordinary leadership of the ANU through an extraordinarily turbulent period. Uh, and uh, Dan Andrews, who's uh, one of the uh, godfathers of the work that I'm going to introduce today, uh, which is really crunched by an extraordinary group of Treasury boffins. Uh, being boffins, they prefer to remain anonymous, but uh, you know who you are, and I'm very grateful for the data crunching that I'll be presenting tonight. For a man that I never got to meet, Fred Gruen had a remarkably large impact on my life. As a university student, his book with Michelle Grattan, Managing Government, Labor's Achievements and Failures, shaped how I thought about the economic impact of the Hawke and Keating governments. I wrote my honours thesis on Labor's unilateral tariff cuts in 1973, 1988 and 1991, and why a social democratic government chose free trade, when many other left-wing governments favoured protectionism. I concluded that part of the answer lay in the power of ideas. Gough Whitlam's 25% tariff cut in 1973 might not have happened without the persuasive impact of Fred Gruen and other economists. Economic ideas matter. Indeed, as Keynes put it, the world is ruled by little else. But it almost didn't happen. Born in Vienna in 1921, Fred Gruen was sent to Australia on a ship called the De Niro in 1940. Two days after departing Liverpool, the boat was struck by a German torpedo, which did not explode. As Bruce Chapman once beautifully observed, Australia benefited greatly from the incompetent German torpedo maker, whose failures enabled the success of the De Niro boys. Initially, Fred Gruen bought a farm in Melbourne and taught agricultural economics at Monash. He said in his early years at Monash that he was one lecture ahead of the students and one fence ahead of the cattle. His research showed a passion for equality as well as efficiency, and this came out in how he conducted himself. In the 1960s, Monash University did not allow several honours students working as research assistants to enter the staff tea room. In protest, Fred and a few other professors refused to use the tea room until the research assistants were admitted to. In 1971, he accepted a professorship at the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University and served as head of economics RSSS from 1972 to 1986. He helped shape the economics RSSS into a research and policy powerhouse. David Gruen said of his father, Dad made economics interesting, immediate and important. John Quiggan wrote a song about, upon Fred Gruen's retirement, which included these verses. You'll be glad to know I don't quite sing as well as John, so I'm going to read them rather than sing them. 
I was lost in the combs, in a maze of empty rooms, when I came across a fine and stately ruin. I took a look to see, and it was a shock to me when I realised that I'd stumbled upon Fred Gruen. He stands out by a mile for grace or charm or style, whether speaking or writing or reviewing. But if your theory's wonky or your arguments are shonky, you'll rue the day you ran across Fred Gruen. Fred died in 1997, on the same day as Nugget Coombs, a coincidence that is for Australian economics the equivalent of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams passing away together on the 4th of July, 1826. When I arrived at Economics RSSS, seven years after his passing, his legacy was still strong. The focus was on publishing in top journals and having an impact on policy. I was the last head of Economics RSSS, which Fred had steered so ably a generation earlier. I've also been greatly influenced by Fred Gruen's sons, Nicholas and David, both of whom found themselves drawn to the family profession. As a Deputy Secretary and Treasury, David even persuaded me to do a secondment to Treasury for six months in 2008-2009. Little did either of us know that 13 years later, I'd end up as the Assistant Minister responsible for the Australian Bureau of Statistics, headed by David. Nor do we know that I have a chance to work with Fred's granddaughter, Anna Gruen, a trusted advisor in the Office of Treasurer Jim Chalmers. My, office, my, my talk today draws on new research, using large business microdata sets to better understand the dynamics of the Australian economy and explore the relationship between market concentration, markups and company formation. My aim is to help explain Australia's productivity slowdown and contribute to a debate about how we can raise productivity in the future. I hope Fred would have approved. Productivity growth is the key driver of living standards over the long run. The key reason that the typical Australian worker now earns more in a day than workers earned in a week in 1901 is that today's workers are more productive. But productivity growth has slowed in Australia since the mid-2000s. Average productivity growth in the past 30 years was 1.6%. Average productivity growth in the past 20 years was 1.2%. And average productivity growth in the past decade is also 1.2%. The Treasurer has confirmed that the upcoming budget will no longer assume that productivity re return to its 30-year average, but instead uses the 20-year figure. That makes a big difference to our assumptions about the trajectory of the economy. Slower productivity growth means lower real wages and less buying power for households. It constrains the ability of the budget to build infrastructure or to help poor people here or overseas. Whether your priority is paying down debt or raising teacher quality, you should be worried about the drop in productivity. Bob Lucas's observation about growth holds for productivity. Once you start thinking about it, it's hard to start thinking about anything else. The slowdown in productivity growth has been, in part, at least in part, driven by a decline in economic dynamism. When workers switch from low productivity to high productivity firms, they earn higher wages. 
and the economy benefits. Yet this productivity-boosting job switching has slowed in recent years. This, can, this alone can account for around a quarter of the productivity slowdown from 2012 to 2016, relative to the decade prior. Research, uh, research finding we owe to Dan Andrews and his co-author. And one way of seeing this is to look at the decline in job mobility since the mid-2000s. Analysing ABS labour force microdata, we can calculate the share of employees who started a new job each quarter. This figure on the screen now shows that the share of workers who started a new job in the past quarter declined from 8.7% in the period from February 2002 to May 2008, down to 7.3% in the period from August 2008 to November 2019. Another crucial measure of the health of an economy is the start-up rate. How many new companies are being created each year? You can think of this as the business equivalent of the birth rate. Just as demographers look at the number of new people coming into the world, industrial organisation economists are interested in the new business formation rate. But in measuring new business formation, it's important to avoid counting mere changes in legal form. If an employee is asked to quit, get an Australian business number, come back the next day as a contractor to do basically the same thing, then Australia has recorded one additional ABN. I don't know we'd like to think of that as a true start-up business. One way to address this problem is to restrict the analysis to employing businesses. This allows us to calculate the entry rate, the number of new firms, divided by the total number of firms at the start of the year, and the exit rate, the number of firm closures, divided by the total number of firms at the start of the year. Figure three shows the entry rate dropped from 13% in 2005-06 to 11% in 2018-19. Over the same period, the exit rate also fell from 10% to 8%. This chart also shows the pandemic period, though it's, it's difficult to be sure the extent to which temporary government support and changes in insolvency laws affected these trends. Still, even if we include the pandemic years, there's a clear downward trend in both lines. Among employing firms, the start-up rate has slowed and the exit rate has declined. Australian firms aren't being created at the same pace as in years past. Our firms are getting older. And just as productivity depends on the creation of new enterprises and the shift of workers to high productivity firms, so too competition matters. Competitive pressures encourage firms to improve quality and offer attractive prices. Competition encourages firms to innovate in their business processes and use their staff more effectively. In competitive industries, companies are forced to ask themselves what they need to do to win market share from their rivals. That might lead to new research and development, the importation of good ideas from overseas, or adopting clever approaches from other industries. Customers benefit from that, but so too does the whole economy. Competition creates the incentive for companies to boost productivity. 
Unfortunately, the reverse is true too. Monopolists tend to charge higher prices and offer worse products and services. They might opt to cut back on research, preferring to invest in moats to keep the competition out. If they have plenty of cash on hand, they might figure that if a rival does emerge, they can simply buy them and maintain their market dominance. Monopoly rents lead to higher profits and higher prices. What do we know about market power in Australia? One way of analysing this is to look at industry concentration. In a paper that I wrote in 2016 with Adam Triggs, we used data from a private provider, Ibis World, to estimate market concentration across 481 industries at a single point in time in 2016. Now, what was nice about that is we could publish the numbers industry by industry. And we found a high level of concentration, but we weren't able to look at whether market concentration had worsened over time. What I'm going to do tonight is use a different data set, confidential data set, so I can't tell you about particular industries, but Blade, the business longitudinal analysis data environment, is a microdata set that contains the universe of Australian firms since 2001-02. It means that in each financial year, we can calculate the market share of the largest four firms within each industry, excluding firms in the finance sector as well as non-market for areas such as health and education. We can also estimate the Herfindahl Index, a measure of concentration calculated from the sum of the squared market share of each firm. The Herfindahl ranges from zero, perfect competition, to one, a single monopolist. We're defining industries at the four-digit ANSIC level, and the analysis is going to cover more than a million firms each year. In 2001-02, the market share of the largest four firms averaged 41%. By 2018-19, that had risen to 43%. Similarly, the Herfindahl Index increased from 0.110 in 2001-02 to 0.113 in 2015-16. We'll clear the more recent years uh, through the internal processes and get you that final, fi final figure by the time we publish the paper. But even without using microdata, we can see that across the economy, from baby food to beer, the top firms hold a high and a growing share of the market. Moreover, that problem might be even larger if one were to take account of the fact that rival firms often have large shareholders in common. For example, the largest shareholders of the Commonwealth Bank are Vanguard and BlackRock which are also the largest shareholders of the other three major banks in Australia. Accounting for common ownership, for example, through a modified Herfindahl Index, which Adam Triggs and I produced in a publication last year, increases measures of market concentration still further. Now, on their own, industry concentration metrics can't give a full picture of competition. For example, an increase in concentration might reflect a competitive environment that forces inefficient firms out of the market. If the biggest four firms in the economy were regularly turning over, we might have high measured concentration, but a dynamic economy all the same. Incumbency metrics, 
try to address this concern by looking at each industry in Australia and asking for the largest four firms in each industry, how many are still there two years later? Or how many are still there four years later? And that's relevant because a highly concentrated industry might still be pretty competitive. There was a lot of churn among the leaders, with new firms growing and displacing the incumbents. But market concentration might be more concerning if the industry was concentrated among a few leaders that use their market power rather than their productivity to resist being dislodged. The analysis here shows that firms have become more secure in their place at the top of the pile. Of the companies that were top four in 2001, 71% were still there two years later. Of the companies that were top four in 2016, 75% were still there two years later. Likewise, of those companies that were top four in 2001, 56% were still there four years later. Of companies who were top four in 2014, 65% were still there four years later. It's getting stickier at the top. What does this mean for consumers? One way to answer that question is to look at what's happened to markups. A markup measures the price that a company charges for its product or service relative to the marginal cost of production. Under perfect competition, markups should be small, reflecting only the need for business owners to make a return that compensates for their risk. Under a monopolised economy, markups might be massive. Figure six draws on the work of Jonathan Hambor, who estimated markups in the non-financial market sector, which captures about 60% of the sales in each constituent industry division. According to Jonathan's estimates, average firm markups increased by about 6% between 2003 and 2016. And that matches the trend in other advanced economies. Now, as I've already, already mentioned, measures of concentration, incumbency and markups aren't perfect measures of market power. There's several potential explanations for the rise in these metrics. And drawing on Jonathan Hambor's work, we can step through three of these explanations. The first potential explanation is that the increase in firm markups might reflect a rise in superstar firms, where the most productive firms benefit at the expense of others. If this were the case, then increasing concentration wouldn't be as concerning because it would reflect resources flowing to more productive uses. But that explanation doesn't appear to be the key driver for Australia. While the increase in markups is larger for the upper part of the distri markup distribution, the increase in markups has been pretty broad based. The increase in markups has been driven by higher markups across entire sectors and isn't limit, limited to upper-end superstar standouts. The second potential explanation for higher markups is changing technology. Firms are increasing, increasingly focused on intangible assets, software and other technologies that have increased returns to scale, network effects, and are more scalable. The increase in markups may therefore reflect the returns to these changing technologies. There's some evidence for this theory. 
Markups have increased by more than twice as much among the most digitally intensive firms, suggesting some role for changing technologies. But markups have also continued to increase in less tech-intensive sectors, suggesting that other dynamics may be at play. The final explanation is that competitive pressures might have declined. In more competitive markets, we'd expect to see lower productivity firms being more likely to exit the markets and less likely to take on staff than high productivity firms. We can test this by looking at how strong these competitive dynamics are in industries that have had larger increases in markups over time. And the Australian evidence indeed shows that in industries with higher markups, these relationships don't hold as strongly. This further supports the evidence provided by a range of indicators that competitive pressures have declined in Australia since the early 2000s. So in conclusion, over, oh, there we go, there's the blade display, disclaimer notice. I can leave you that to, to read while I conclude. Over recent decades, there's been a, lot, a number of significant changes in the Australian economy. The job switching rate has fallen, the business start-up rate has declined. The largest firms have increased their market share. Markups have increased, and all of this suggests that the Australian economy has become less competitive. Might that help explain the productivity slowdown? Well, one back-of-the-envelope calculation suggests that rising market power had reduced the rate at which labour flows to its most productive use, which has in turn reduced annual labour productivity growth by 0.1 percentage points. That's about a fifth of the observed productivity slowdown since 2012. There's evidence, again from Dan Andrews and his co-authors, that declining competitive pressures are one of the main reasons Australian firms have become slower to adapt, to innovate and to improve their productivity performance. Low productivity growth and declining competition are key long-term issues facing the Australian economy. More work's needed on this topic from both the public sector and academics to better understand why market power has increased and therefore whether policies can and should be used to boost competition and productivity growth. In past decades, competition policy in Australia has been overly influenced by the so-called Chicago School approach, which took a relatively relaxed approach to market dominance. Chicago's school adherents, such as Robert Bork, argued that if a firm tried to overcharge, competitors would take its market share. According to Bork, predatory pricing wouldn't occur because firms could never recoup their losses as new competitors entered the market. Big could be beautiful. In recent decades, a new approach has emerged. The new Brandis movement holds that excessive market concentration can harm consumers and dampen dynamism. Too much market concentration, it argues, can lead to a less innovative and more sluggish economy. Last month, I travelled to Washington DC to meet with some of the key policymakers who epitomise this movement. Senator Amy Klobuchar, author of the book Antitrust, Taking on Monopoly Power from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age, is pushing in the US Senate for a bill that would bar technology platforms from prioritising their own services over their rivals. Lena Khan, author of Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, heads the Federal Trade Commission, 
which is targeting acquisitions by digital platforms. Tim Wu, author of The Curse of Bigness, helped President Biden draft an executive order on a whole-of-government effort to promote competition in the American economy. Australia should not ignore the marked shift in the way that senior American officials regard competition policy. That's all the more so, given the evidence that our economy has seen a fall in the start-up rate, a rise in market concentration, and a rise in markups. Competition policy should be one of the factors we consider when implementing regulation, given that regulatory costs for new businesses are larger relative to their size. Linking workers with new jobs faster will encourage competition and dynamism, which we recognise through our Jobs and Skills Summit and the white paper that will follow. We also help competition when we encourage investors to back productive new opportunities instead of parking wealth in existing assets. Lowering financing frictions will also encourage funding to flow to new and innovative firms, which in turn will challenge incumbents. A range of important reviews will provide insights on how to tackle Australia's competition problem. Later this year, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission will hand down its digital platforms inquiry, which will likely address some of the competition issues in the sector. Next year, the Independent Productivity Commission will hand down its five yearly productivity review. Again, I trust that market dynamism and competition will receive serious consideration in the Productivity Commission's analysis of the problem and suggested solutions. And in the next couple of years, Treasury is expected to deliver an updated intergenerational report. Lower productivity projections will hopefully focus attention on the need for a more dynamic economy. Nicholas Gruen said of his father that Fred Gruen liked the idea of economics because he was an idealist. After a childhood shaped by the despair of the Depression and the horror of World War II, he believed that economics could help shape a better world. Fred combined rigorous policy analysis with a deep sense of altruism. 101 years after Fred Gruen's birth, it remains a pretty good mantra for reformers everywhere. Thanks very much.